but uh, this this whole under the banner of heaven things it took over social media uh, at least my social media especially twitter um and then when the roe versus wade thing happened it has anyone had their like close mormon friends or family watch it and if so their reaction we don't have to talk about it now or later but because yeah because i haven't like i I don't know anyone who's watched apart from like post-mormon people one of the main um promotional pictures that was on hulu was of a woman wearing temple Mm. (laughs) attire i think immediately that would any you know active friend or family member that i know of or that i personally have interacted with with yeah that's what was like really striking to me like the misogyny like it was so heavy and like i was having a hard time like trying to like understand if like that was accurate or not like are they just like because I'm like, there's no way that the church is that misogynistic. But then I'm like, wait, yeah, yes, it is. <laughs> his his doubt was his greatest ally. He was always constantly doubting. And I think a life of faith is not a life of certainty. A life of faith is a life of, of doubt. And I think it is so healthy to doubt. It's so healthy to doubt oneself. It's so healthy to doubt any um, assumption we make about how to live. And I think... What I say when I what I mean when I say certainty scares me. Certainty starts war. Certainty starts war on behalf of ideology. Certainty of the I I know and you don't. That's the scariest thing to me in what a human being is capable of doing. is infants on thrones baby steps who wants someone to preach to the philosophies of men i like magical toys mingled with humor i don't believe in them there will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor we are evolving baby steps even by end this world of money the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone all right welcome back to infants on thrones i'm glenn ostland and this is episode 802 Hulu's Under the Banner of Heaven, A Review, Part 1. And today I am joined once again by Reed, Jess, Wren, and Kurt to discuss episodes 1 and 2 of Hulu's Big F.U. to the Mormon Church, where all of the dirty little Mormon secrets become, like, splattered, you know, like, threads in this in a web, like, like in, a, in a spider web, in a threads in a spidey web, because, you know, like... Andrew Garfield was Spider-Man, and so he's kind of like like uh, Mormon man. Mormon man does whatever a Mormon man can. Okay, I'll shut up now, sorta. First, here comes the Spider-Man. You were first. Were you channeling Arcturians while you were waiting? Yeah, and I was practicing my. Uh, 
my John Dolan impressions too. Well, let's hear that. Let let's. I I would like to hear the John Dolan impression. Never channeling. I've never. I'd like to hear the John Dolan channeling the Arcturians impression. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Hello, hello, everybody. What does he say? We got a really super great podcast today. I don't know. I know now you're getting self conscious. I can't do I, I can't like do it. Arcturians and John. Lennon. I know it's a, it's it's a it's a high degree of difficulty, even for John. Yeah, yeah, he has a pretty unique voice. Yeah, he does. Who doesn't have a unique voice, Kurt? All right, all so right, everybody. So, uh, let's uh, got a yeah. super great. Uh, how's that? I don't know. I I haven't listened to John for so long. I don't even know what he sounds like anymore. Is that what John he sounds kind like? Kind of sounds like he has a cold all the time. Like us on TikTok. Well, I got the Thrive hat going. Way to go, Reed. I'm just kidding. I don't. Okay. When it's time. When it's and, time. And uh, now I humbly turn the time over to Brother. John Hamas says no. Oh, we don't say my last name on here, Glenn. We don't. No. Watch just, out. just say, uh, brother Reed. Okay. Brother Reed's good. Okay. What if, what if, um, I say brother, no, no, no. but like I pronounce it where it's spelled with. All right. That's such a weird paranoia that like, no, I shouldn't say paranoia, but like anxiety, anxiety that, that like this would get back to like a loved one somehow. Like if it got back to a loved one somehow, like, wouldn't you just be like, well, what were you doing listening to that? Like, <laughs> it's yeah. it's like the equivalent of how did you know my eyes were open in the prayer? Like, yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't know if you guys know this about me or not, but my dad's name is Glenn Oslin. So I, I'm a second. And um, he told he told me a while back that like some of his uh, BYU college buddies uh came across Glenn Oslin doing this anti-Mormon podcast and they thought it was him. And so they've been like shunning him for the last oh, no. 10 years because they thought it was, was you know, like oh, they, that's they, they were going to do some kind of a reunion. They're like, let's not invite Glenn because of what, and so they finally cleared it up. But um, I'm like, and you still want to hang out with those kind of people, dad? But anyway. Wow. wow. So it does get back to people, Ren. Yeah, no, I would say mine's more work related. Mm. A lot of people that would, you know, I don't know. Um, all right. Uh, under the banner of heaven, today's topic today. Um, first off, I want to say I had never read the book until, uh, I guess, last week. Um, and uh, it was very disturbing. Uh, it, but uh, this this whole under the banner of heaven things it took over social media, uh, at least my social media, especially Twitter. Um, and then when the Roe versus Wade thing happened, it completely disappeared. <laughs> now all I see is the Roe Roe v Wade stuff on my on my feeds. So um, I don't think we're too late to the party here, um, as the shows are still coming out every week. And I don't know if anyone's watched. We so I. I watched the first and second episode and I started the third last night and I didn't finish it. Have you guys all watched all I of the forgot. episodes? I forgot that it came out on Thursday. So I watched the first two as well. There was a lot of buildup to this. 
Like that's, I think it was very, a lot of anticipation, a lot of buzz, a lot was going on in the air, kind of getting ready for this. So it was hard to miss if you're in the culture, you know, even a little bit. Yeah. Um, Post-Mormon culture. I actually don't know if more of my active friends were even, you know, it was on their radar the same but for me, like you read, like social media was, it was a big deal. So I knew about it. I planned on it. I put it in my calendar and I watched it, but I forgot. Like, what does that say? About I, 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 I want to get back it. to the idea. I want to get back to the idea of like, has, has anyone had their like close Mormon friends or family watch it? And if so, their reaction, we don't have to talk about it now or later, but. Yeah. No, I'm, I, I, I. Because yeah, because I haven't like I, I don't know anyone who's watched apart from like post Mormon well, people. Well, I'll I'll say I, I haven't had like close uh, believing Mormon friends watch it, but uh, Cammy, who I live with and has been out of the church for at least as long as I have, watched it, and she's like, I can't watch any more of this. This is way too triggering for me. Really? Yeah, yeah. Like all all of the uh, women's like gender Misogyny. inequality yeah, <laughs> issues yeah. and things like that. She's like, I, I know it's a story. It's a, I just can't, I can't, I've lived too much of that. That's similar to go back into it. I can't. Definitely felt some of that. Yeah. <clears throat> I think considering one of the main um, promotional pictures that was on Hulu was of a woman wearing temple mm. <laughs> attire. I think immediately that would any, you know, active friend or family member that I know of, or that I personally have interacted with would be a no brainer. We wouldn't watch that. So um, I don't know. Well, uh, so let's start down. I know I, I kind of created a little format for our, our show tonight because uh, we needed that. There's so much to this show and the book and, a lot of thoughts around it. So the first thing was, uh, what did you like about the show from what you watched the first two episodes? Glenn, let's start with you because I think you might be the outlier here. I'm going to, I'm going to say you might be you. In had, what way? Uh, I, I, I thought I heard you say the other day that you liked it. Oh my God. I loved it. Like I, I watched the first two episodes last week. I haven't started on the third one, but like, yeah, I just, I, I loved everything about it. And, um, I loved the scene like when Andrew Garfield is in the car and he's driving to the murder scene and he's praying to himself. I just went, Oh my God, I, I'd forgotten. I used to do that. Yeah, I used to do that too. Like I used to do that that all the time. And, and, and then I started thinking, you know, what, what do I do now? Like what, what am I occupying my time now? Like in, in the episode that you guys recorded last week um, where you're talking about, neurology and you know like uh, cr- creating neural pathways like anything you do you get better at doing that thing you're like reinforcing your neural pathways so here here I'm watching Andrew Garfield portray this Mormon guy who's constantly repeating in his head things like help help me be of service to people around me you know help help me help me be a light unto this world and I, the way that he played it I can see like that kind of burden and that heaviness i don't know i'm I'm projecting my own stuff onto it i'm sure but i it 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 reminded me of a an aspect of my experience in mormonism that i'm actually quite grateful for because 
I, I still care about people and like wanting to be a good person. And I think that all of those times that I said prayers, like to please bless me to be a big good person or, you know, like to help, help people around me. Um, that, that emphasis on service and stuff, I think, yeah, really hit home. So I liked that about it. I, there isn't really anything that I didn't like about it. I, I thought that the actor that is playing the, you know, Lafferty, young Lafferty boy, he, you know, is a little over the top with the, the acting, but is this I thought Alan it was fine. In the, What's that? Um, Alan, who's getting... Um... The one who's the husband. He, he's Brenda's yeah. husband. That's okay. Alan. Yeah, yeah, Alan, yeah. Yeah. But I, I also, um, I didn't do the homework read, so I'm sorry. I didn't listen to that that podcast, but I'm going to comment on it out of my ignorance anyway, because I'm so good at it. I don't, I don't need to listen to something to comment on it. <laughs> yeah, you're I don't need to be pro. informed. <laughs> Not at all. So, uh, so here's another question for you, Glenn, were you bothered at all by some of the, the script or just, I guess the, the way that they had them speaking, like he said, he, they were like I felt like the first episode they were referring to Heavenly Father all the time. I've I've never heard anyone do that, like the like Heavenly Father. There's something about the upside down pineapple cake or something, and he Heavenly Father wouldn't have. I don't know. Just there was to me it was uh, it a lot of emphasis on brother, 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 sister, yeah, yeah. sister, sister, which I mean happens, but every sentence that you use to address somebody, it seemed a little. <laughs> Yeah. Read, read. I Who the, was the it? same thing that the same that same thing that jumped out to you was jumped out to me when he said it was like it was Jeb, Andrew Garfield's character talking to his wife and said something about like, oh, like God knows you'd never be able to do that. But he said, oh, Heavenly Father knows you'd yeah, do it like yeah. with the yeah, I think it was with a pineapple upside down cake or whatever. Um, but it's like it was it was something that I've never heard said once before. What I, I I'm confused. What was it that you never heard said? <clears throat> Someone saying Heavenly Father knows, like in replace for like, oh God knows you'd never do that. You know <laughs> what I mean? Oh take your take your regular normal like, like cuss use words, cuss sentences, and substituting right. the Mormon words. But like wow, not, I, I, don't I do didn't, it that way. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't I didn't catch that. Then that just went right over my head. So I, I, I to, to answer your question, Reed, no, it didn't bother me because it didn't stick. It didn't, yeah. No, it just, it, it just flowed through, man. It flowed through. It felt like, it felt like the language was like, just like a little bit too much of a caricature of, yeah. of how people spoke. It was like, it was like 30% too much Mormonism. One thing I noticed in comments on social media in response to it is that there is such a spectrum in Mormonism. You know, there are people watching that say, that's my family. Right. That is how we talked. Yeah. And others that are just like, we never would have done that. We didn't have that. We didn't, yeah. you know, so I think that's to be expected, but you can't yeah. really rate, you know, the accuracy of language just based off of one family's experience. It's, I'm right. sure there are families that say Heavenly Father, whatever, all yeah. the time. <laughs> and, and the most important reaction and response is yours anyway, right? Right. <laughs> and I think this Always. would be totally different if, if we weren't. So if this was a show about Scientology or Seventh-day Adventist or, you know, you name it, we wouldn't, we would have no idea. We wouldn't have any place to judge, right. but I think we all feel like we have a place to, uh, to judge it because that, you know, 
we grew up in it. So we're expecting what shows up on the screen is to be kind of our individual, you know, experience where I grew up, it was, it was not Utah and it definitely didn't, you know, and so I, I'm trying to give it a pass on Mm. some of the language they're using, but it's hard. (laughs) It's cause it's just, and wait till episode three, there was one line that I'm just going to spoil it. Go ahead. I'm not spoiling any part of the show, but it was the worst line. Like my wife and I just like groaned hearing it where he was saying goodbye to his wife or something and, and she was in, in bed. And he said, in, in the name of Jesus Christ. And then he starts kissing her. Does not make sense at all. Like it was- That's it not was normal. So, no, like no one does that, right? Um, it's so, it's so I, funny I mean, I that like these are the details do. that you pick on to go, eh. I, I can't help it. I, I know, it is, it's just funny. There's, I think a contrast that's kind of important too to notice, there's the Lafferty's who are kind of summing up the fundamentalist view of Mormonism. There's Jeb and his wife that are kind of in between there. And then there's this progressive family, Brenda's family. Right, yeah. So I feel like you could kind of pick you know, elements from each family and be like, oh, I know so-and-so, or this is more my experience. But along the lines of compliments, there definitely were things, you know, beats or conversations that I felt like they got really spot on. Yeah. You know, um, especially for me, I think the moment that Brenda meets the Lafferty family, like I was having flashbacks from, you know, (laughs) my husband's one of seven and they have a ginormous group and it's so... You know, there's that character, what's her name, Matilda, that's a convert. And I felt kind of like her where she's just like, like me, everybody like me. <laughs> um, that really translated well on screen, just that overwhelm. And then two, all those weird comments that are passed around by men, you know, like, oh, she's oh. a looker or, oh, you really caught yourself one or whatever it is mm-hmm. like that happens. I felt that and that I feel like you could really see that in Brenda, the way she was experiencing it, kind of taking all that in. Yeah, that's what was like really striking to me, like the misogyny, like it was so heavy and like I was having a hard time, like trying to like understand if like that was accurate or not. Like, are they just like, because I'm like, there's no way that the church is that misogynistic. But then I'm like, wait, yeah, (laughs) yes, it is. (laughs) Well, especially like back in the eighties, right? Like it was, it's, it was very different back then than it is now. Like I, when I was watching it, I was thinking, is this like, does current day Mormonism feel closer to this type of Mormonism from the 1800, sorry, from the 1980s than like, than like, than this does what we're watching on the screen to like fundamentalist Mormons, like which feels closer to me? And honestly, it feels like the the Mormonism that they're depicting on the show feels closer to like to, to fundamentalist Mormons who are polygamists and everything. You know what I mean? Then then yeah. it does to current day Mormonism. I mean, it's, current day with everything that's going on feels so. I mean, Glenn, you said this before, like milk toast when it comes to general conference and everything. But it feels very just like plain whitewashed. Where here they're talking about doctrine and like getting back to first principles and everything it's just it's 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 crazy it feels like such a different world feels yeah, I, more blatant 
in this, but having those undertones, is going to influence a lot of the more like subdued comments that you get now, or like motivation behind some of those nods that you hear in Sunday school or something where you're like, what does that mean? But everyone knows, you know, kind of what mm -hmm. they're talking about. Yeah. So it's like, if you're raised you know, in, through the 80s or you're a young adult then and you were saturated in that kind of culture with extreme, no more extreme, they just talked about it. They just said stuff that was more out there. Mm -hmm. If you were raised in that, that's going to inform, even if you're more progressive now, inform a lot of the way that you approach things, the way you have conversations, the way that men, I know for me in my experience, men that would kind of talk down or like, oh, don't say so much, you know, or whatever it is, you know, that's coming from somewhere and you can see what, you know, those conversations they're having in the show is what, why, you're feeling some of those feelings you feel now as a woman anyway in church. Yeah, I I wonder about like what we're seeing most often episode one and two is kind of Lafferty Mormonism, you know, mm -hmm. to kind of speak to that. Like, is this like what Mormonism was in the 80s or whatever? It's really, it's really what the Lafferty, Lafferty family was practicing. And it's really not even what the Lafferty family was practicing. It's like a dramatization of what they were practicing. So it's going to be like an amalgamation of a lot of different, you know, perspectives and stuff. But like, I, I, it kind of scares me because I, like, you know, growing up in it, not being able to recognize what was happening like when, when you watch that show and you, that scene, especially the dinner scene that you're talking about, Jess, when she gets invited for that family dinner, there's so many red flags and so many like, mm. what are you, why Brenda leave now? Brenda, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> why are you still at this lunch picnic? Get out of there. Like, oh, like, and I, I couldn't imagine if like that was happening in real life and I wasn't able to recognize it. Like, what other stuff am I oblivious to? You know what I mean? You know, I will say that I think we all know a family kind of like that, wouldn't you say? And um, and when they bring home like someone that they're gonna they're dating seriously and come to meet the family, you see them in church, and all your thing is like, run! You don't know what you're getting into. Like, don't don't get into this family. They're crazy. But you know, they got 13 kids, and you know everything is about the family. I think we've all it was that was so I, I guess ubiquitous um part of that that show uh, all right anybody else in terms of uh what the show gets wrong or i think we've kind of hit that pretty hard well, i you wanted know, to say some things about what i like yeah go ahead I really i really liked bill i really liked the other detective like i, uh, I wanted so much more of bill in this like andrew garfield's a, a cute guy and it's great and everything but like bill i feel like was the real like you know audience stand in for the audience to me because you know he's outside mormonism and he's got such a much more like you know uh practical like detective style and uh uh i just wanted him to be a lot more like the everyman reflection of andrew garfield's crazy mormon beliefs you know but he was so that I just was wanting more bill. <laughs> I, I was, I, I was really, I, I learned something and I, and I don't know if this is something legitimate historical or they made it up, but I liked it in, in one of the early flashback scenes between Joseph and Emma, 
first just seeing how young they were was like that that was really cool uh, but the the story that she wanted him to elope with her and it was either well what, how did they frame it it was either he's listening to god or he's listening to her father and if he would have made the choice at that moment to listen to her father then he would have undermined his relationship with her for the rest of their time together so he kind of had to it was almost like he was strong armed to lean into this you know voice of god thing and that kind of influence uh on the you know like coming just out of a, a very common relationship uh, uh, obsession infatuation among two young kids and how that influenced uh, a whole religion that arose from it i thought that was a fascinating insight but I'd, i've never heard anybody talk about that before was that news to you guys or had, had you come across something like that before i've never heard of that like i i, I knew that when joseph and emma eloped and then when she got pregnant that Joseph was telling people that their child would be the one that would translate the golden plates. Um, and that was his plan, at least to pass it off as that until that child didn't survive. And then he had to change plans. But I didn't, I didn't know this little bit about um, having to choose between God and uh, Isaac Hale. Gee, Glenn, you should have, you know, consulted on the show. <laughs> <laughs> So, Should I have? <laughs> well, I thought with the episode title, it was titled When God Was Love. And so I thought that was kind of a through line showing Joseph and Emma and how mm. it was love that kind of got it going. And you can even see, you know, even the sick and twisted motivations that, you know, come out. I think you would still see their arguments as being for love in ways, you know, and how using that as the you know catalyst or whatever it sounds nice until it becomes something else so mm. um so what do you think of and this is a purely artistic thing that we're talking about here and this kind of gets to uh, there was an interview on um radio west with uh what's his name dustin lance black i believe yeah. i should have looked this up um yes, that's right yeah, so he did an interview. It was really good. And it kind of talked about the fictional characters of Jeb Pine and what was his name, Ren? Bill, I can't remember. Bill Taba. Taba, yeah. Taba. I think so. mm -hmm. Yeah. And how we're supposed to kind of, um, when you're reading the book, you're kind of acting as this investigator. And it was it was kind of fascinating. And we're, we're kind of running out of time, so I'm not going to play the whole clip. Um, do you think that's an effective way of telling the story of using a fictional character? Do you think that detracts from some of the, you know, what you're seeing on the screen, you're, you're thinking is kind of history, right? But they've, they've kind of fictionalized this part. Um, what do you think of that? I think I'm kind of in, in Glenn's camp on this, that like the whole thing's a fiction, right? The TV drama it is all fiction, right? Like the, sure the events happened in real life but like this like this is a story and it's a it's a fictional story right um and uh so yes it's very effective to have like a character to stand in for like 
kind of key the audience to what they're supposed to be feeling about things. Um, uh, so I'm not really like worried about whether or not like they convey like a, a reality. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. Uh, I am, I am, I, yeah, I think it's a, they're, it's a, it is an effective storytelling technique. Yeah, and I'd like to echo Ren echoing me that uh, <laughs> the, uh, you know, like you, you can have a character that's Joseph Smith. Yeah, there really was a character named Joseph Smith, but guess what? <laughs> what you're seeing on the screen isn't really him. Yeah. <laughs> These aren't really the words that he said. It's not really what he looked like. It's not really what he was doing. He wasn't like, you know, so it, it all is a fictional depiction that is from the perspective of the person who wrote it. And then people who, you know, and, and everybody, if, if you went back and you interviewed people that were actually there at the time, they would give you different stories about what actually was happening anyway. And, and That's true. It, all these different subjective perspectives. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that you kind of have to when, especially when you're doing a historical uh, TV show like this, to be able to create fictional characters that represent ideas and kind of like what you want to convey as a storyteller where you've only got a limited amount of time to tell the story you know you just just embrace that it's a fiction i know that uh the creator dustin lance black when he was interviewed he said or he stated that his uh the purpose of it was kind of a cautionary tale um, against fundamentalism and what happens and the real important part of, you know, what's really needed in these groups to evaluate the rules that we have and assess whether these are working or not. So having like a plot device, like an interrogation where there's someone that it kind of felt like, did it feel like the guy, Alan, he was the fresh Exmo and then Jeb <laughs> was like the active believer and Alan was just like in that angry phase where he's saying all the things you want to say, like right when you find out all this stuff. Totally. And it just was playing out that way to me, like the beginning of a faith crisis or something where you're processing and someone's trying to take it all in. Mm. And then as a viewer, you're trying, you're left kind of to pick out, you know, what is really happening or what maybe is the story here? Um, nope. I thought that was effective nope. enough, I guess. I can't say I was a fan of him revealing all that stuff during the interrogation because it just seems so unbelievable. Like your wife and, and kid just got murdered and you're in there going off about truth claims that, that aren't, you know, I don't know. For it, the sake of the show. I know, I know. <laughs> moving it along. But yeah, I think we all too, our experiences were like, okay, that didn't work when I did it like that. <laughs> or yeah. when I brought that up, that was bad. So yeah, we have a different perspective, I think, than, you know, your average viewer. The, the thing that, um, <clears throat> the thing that I liked about, well, in the interview, in the Radio West interview, um, Dustin Lance Black talked about how when you read the book, John Krakauer is the one who's like guiding you through the whole experience, you know, and it's him, his ability to tell a story and and like weave these interconnected pieces all together in this coherent story, right? And I, I think the world of John Krakauer, and I've read, I think, pretty much all of his books. Um, and so like using that, using that idea of taking a detective to like weave you through the whole story, I, I think it's super effective. Um, and like, 
I really like Andrew Garfield too. That's mm. just an aside. He, he kind of reminds me of like our generations, like Tom Hanks or something, you know, he has like a, yeah. a mannerism that's very easy to do. I don't know. What did you think of the scene where he ate those French fries? Under, I thought that was such an awkward like scene, like Bill offered him some French fries. And they should use like caffeinated soda or something. Something a little more like, along the line. What, are, what is he like sticks his head under the desk to like get the fries out of there like a dog or something? I was like, what is happening? Sorry, uh, Andrew Garfield. That's what I was, I was like. This is this this kind of feels erotic. I don't know. <laughs> All right. So um, kind of going off of that, the what what do you believe is kind of the thesis or the goal of, of the book or the show? Um, we haven't really talked about the book. I, I don't think we're going to, there's not enough time to get into that. Um, but are they different? Do you think, do you think Krakauer's thesis is different than what what Dustin Lance Black is trying to do? Because I kind of, I think they are a little different, but I don't know. It's, we haven't seen the whole show, so it's hard to tell. Yeah, that's I, tricky. I think we know we where believe, this is going, yeah. right? With I think the character is heading for a faith crisis. I think the Jeb Pyrie guy is, is heading, like he's learning stuff and he's going to deep dive into it and find out, you know, a bunch of stuff. He, he is. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's like, I think that's, Sorry, and I, I think I've like listened to maybe two interviews with Dustin Lance Black, and he talked about this. Maybe he talked about it in the Radio West one too. But like, he he grew up Mormon as well, and then left. I don't know how old he was. Maybe his teenager teenage years or something like that. But that's definitely part of it. But to the theme, like I, I don't know. Maybe we'll get to this later. Read, but as far as like, um, violence that sort of thing. It, it doesn't feel like that's necessarily necessarily the theme. It wasn't the theme in my mind of what Crack Hours was getting at. And we'll see how much it is throughout the whole series, whether that's like the overriding theme here is, is like religion has the ability to lead to violence, specifically Mormonism, right? Um, but like the, the theme, overarching theme for, for me for sure is like, if you believe in certainty, that religion potentially can lead you to do harmful things. If you believe in like very black and white rigid terms mm -hmm. that, that those beliefs could potentially lure some, some groups of individuals into doing really terrible things. Do you think it's, it's interesting to note too, the fact that the book came out, didn't it come out shortly after 9-11? Yeah. So there was that in the air of like religious extremism causing something catastrophic. So, you know, the way that we kind of internalized that through the book, it was with a different lens then. And then now opposed to, you know, what we're dealing with now where, you know, there is still this fervor of pushing ideology into, you know, <laughs> uh, making everyone be the same and believe the same things. And I think it's, it's kind of a, um, an interesting comparison, like how, where were we then, you know, as a world and where are we now and what are the threats? Are they the same? How are they different? You know, like violence, I know, Reed, that was something that you talked about. I'm sure we're going to get there, <laughs> but, you know, like 
we think violence in one way, you know, 9-11, that's like the epitome. That is, you know, the most obvious form of violence being committed. And then now, you know, we have, you know, people's rights and, you know, freedoms and stuff that are at risk. And, you know, that's also another form of violence, I think. But yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting to think about the times when the book or now the series are coming out, differences. I know in that um, Radio West interview, Lance Black, um, he uh, wanted to kind of broaden his theme about like, yeah, this is about, you know, ideology or, or religion, uh, a cautionary tale that, you know, these things can happen if you let it or whatever. But um, I feel like he was softening his his true stance. Like I, this was explicitly about Mormonism, like. <laughs> It, it wasn't about like any religion this could happen it was about mormonism so much to the point that they had all of these like interludes about mormon history that i i'm pretty sure like non-mormon people well, I, I mean i don't know i don't think that they would care like you don't you don't have to get your point across by like converting people to mormonism first and teaching them the whole history of everything and then, like, you know, explaining that that was the motivation behind these murders, if your, like, theme is a much broader, uh, you know, ideology or, or like, religion uh, can lead to violence. Like, it was, it was Mormonism leads to violence, right? Um, I don't know that I necessarily, like, agree with that intention or that theme, because to me, in the dramatization, like, what I was seeing a lot of was, like, really fragile male egos on the brink of like madness you know mm -hmm. and in, in like all kinds of like extreme pressures coming down on them um and and they're just gonna snap uh in violent ways and and i don't know that's kind of what i was interpreting yeah totally and i think i read somewhere the phrase certainty is another means for ego to take control so the minute that you allow yourself to think that you know or that you should know, it just gives permission for that egoic like state to come out and just take take charge. And it really is, I think you're right, Ren, about kind of examining kind of the male stereotypical power hungry type of thing in a structure like that, like what can happen, yeah. the range of that. Yeah, yeah. My spouse and I were watching it and we just kept thinking like, these are just the different Mormon guy types you know, all of the different characters, there's so many male characters and they're just different types of Mormon guys. And we were like trying to rank them in terms well, of the, their like. <laughs> yeah, the second episode had that creepy professor. Like yeah. that is so common, guys. Like I, that is my experience where you'd be like, oh, let's mm. meet after church and talk to you about some callings. And then they start talking for a while and you're like, when are we talking about the callings, <laughs> you know? So there's, I don't know, a lot of nods to just how weird it is. <laughs> yeah. There's so much weirdness in, in, I mean, yeah, so much weirdness in male Mormonism. I, like, I remember, I remember like this, when we lived, I lived in Colorado and we had like in our ward, there was this guy that would just like, always just like semi, he was, he was all like old, like, 60 and would like semi hit on my wife at church all the time and just like come up and touch her arm and just like say these weird comments about what she's wearing and everything and every time 
it was so awkward and like we would laugh about it after but at the same time it was just so cringeworthy you know and like that two years ago tanner and i were sitting in sacrament meeting and i had already kind of left but i was still going as a support and someone that we knew in the ward came up and just said you got yourself a real looker here like we're just Mm. (laughs) sitting minding our own business (laughs) but you know like i don't think people even give themselves permission to think about what that might feel like for somebody to hear it's just so second nature well is that is that comment though unique to mormonism would you only i don't know i have no i haven't lived i haven't been in any other religions to know if some other you know weirdo is going to come up and well when you have sacrament meeting with all men sitting up there and you know all the 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 man walking up and down the aisle counting you know like you're just reminded passing sacrament all of that who's Mm -hmm. in charge (laughs) so regardless of if it's explicitly like said or spoken out loud you'll feel that feeling of oh I'm I'm a little bit less than like or I you know and it's it's not explicit and that's why it keeps going on I think most of the time is you know you're like oh well they're just nice or oh that you know I don't know I think uh you know Mormonism you know grew up in the context of America right and so the like the stew of American patriarchy like is what grew Mormonism. And Mormonism then took that like that and made it sacred, right? Mm. And said that this power structure is a sacred power structure. And so it's unique kind of, right? Like it's it has a unique American flavor, I would say. Well, Krakauer called it a distinctly American religion, Mormonism. It's it's like it's the epitome of an American religion, right? Like it, it, just like you said, Ren, it grew up as America grew up, and and then you get that vibe throughout the show, which I thought was I I thought this I I really love this aspect of the show, um, showing the Lafferty's um, disdain for the government and disdain for taxes, um, because that is like so on the nose mm-hmm. with um you know like the bundies of, and like yeah clive and bundy like mm-hmm. nevada ranchers not paying taxes or like yeah going up into oregon and taking over government buildings that sort of thing it's like those roots you know it's it's not like mormonism everywhere but there are reasons that that um that 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 idea permeates mormonism in places you know mm-hmm all right um i'm gonna have to play a clip now uh, we're gonna transition a little bit here uh so this is a clip of kind of going back to our conversation last week about certainty um let me just uh share let me see. hopefully you can uh i guess can you see my screen all right here we go so I, what do you mean? By the way, this is uh, Andrew Garfield, and he's on Stephen Colbert's show, and they're talking. Colbert is asking a bunch of questions about um, faith, and you know, it's all in context. I, I'm sure of of the show that that he's trying to promote. So I thought it was really interesting to hear what Andrew said. 
Certainty is terrifying. Certainty is terrifying? Yeah. I mean... <sighs> if you knew that there was an afterlife, would that be comforting or terrifying? How, how would I ever know? I don't know. Uh, but is that, but, but I, what, what I mean is... is a visitation that, from an angel, how about that? Well, sure, but I would always question it. Even after a visitation, I would always... I think it's healthy. You think about Thomas Merton, the great Trappist sure. monk and, and philosopher, really. Yeah. Um, his, his doubt was his greatest ally. I think he was always constantly doubting. And I think a life of faith is not a life of certainty. A life of faith is a life of, of doubt. And I think it is so healthy to doubt. It's so healthy to doubt oneself. It's so healthy to doubt any um, assumption we make about how to live. And I think what I say when I, what I mean when I say certainty scares me, certainty starts war. Certainty starts war on behalf of ideology, certainty of the I, I know and you don't. That's the scariest thing to me in what a human being is capable of doing. Andrew, thank you so much for being here. All right. Thoughts, Glenn? Start off with you being quiet. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree with him. Yeah, cer certainty about anything. Uh, when when it when it creates fights because you're arguing with people about anything that you're certain about when you're really not that you know are you really certain about it is it really worth having a fight about it could you go eh, maybe maybe I don't know I could look into that thing you know it, it's not like I, I don't see it as like a black or white thing like you're either certain or you're uncertain but it's like can you just relax a little bit and go yeah i think that it's this way everything that i've experienced makes me think that it might be this way but i it could be some other way so i'm going to be like mostly confident but you know leave a little bit of room for if there's something that comes along that shows me that i'm wrong i i, I want to know if you saw an angel glenn would you uh would you doubt it the way um, he describes If you, I, if you I saw was, an angel, would you ask to shake its hand? That's I was, I was going to make a joke about Jess, but I can't now. Um, she's already <laughs> told us, you know, like Tanner's got a, a, a looker there. Yeah, I see an angel all the time. No. Um, yeah, that's just a Mormon man kind of thing for me to say. I, I'm going to say it about I'm going to say it about Ren. There you go. That, yeah. Yeah. I'm always seeing an angel there. Would I would I doubt it if I saw an angel? I don't know. I wouldn't doubt the experience that I had. I, th that's like if, if I'm standing in front of you and am I doubting that I'm having a conversation with you, I might doubt like some of the things that you say, but if you're standing in front of me and I see you in front of me, then I don't have a doubt about that. But I, I might question your motivations, like wh whether you're being honest with me or not, um, whether you've really got my best interest at heart. Uh, things like that. But the fact that you're there and I saw you, um, I, I wouldn't doubt. So w with an, with an angel or like an alien. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess that's more apropos for you. So, so you I'll tell you this. England. <laughs> so, so, so this last weekend I did go. So I, uh, a, a year ago, I interviewed Ruben Langdon on the podcast who does a, a series on Gaia called Interviews with Extra Dimensionals. And um, I met up with him in the desert in California at Joshua Tree over the weekend and did for the, the new moon last Saturday, a 
a meditation to kind of call in. It's called CE5. There's a movie called Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, where this guy, Stephen Greer, recommends this methodology to, to meet the extraterrestrials that are out there, right? So I'm sitting with this group of people and it was so weird and cool. And at one point we saw these two lights in the sky and Ruben has this like laser that points out. It was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. It's like on a, on a chalkboard, but it's up in the, the sky, this really powerful laser. He's like, all right, you see these two lights right here? They're moving kind of at the, the speed that you would expect to see a satellite. They're not blinking, but there's two of them and they're moving in unison. And the way that I saw them, they like moved in a straight line and then they kind of like moved off to the side and then they moved in a straight line and they kind of moved off to the other side. So they're kind of like a zigzagging thing. And then they just were gone. They just disappeared. Like I was, I was tracking it and boom, they're not there anymore. So do I think, am I like certain that I saw UFOs and yeah, they're there. No, I'm not certain that I saw UFOs. I have no idea what I saw, except that there were these two lights that were kind of zig. I'm not even certain that they were really zigzagging because other people didn't see the zigzags, but I saw the zigzags. Um, they disappeared. I, I don't know what that means or what it was, but it was a cool experience to be there. I'm not going to make any claims with any kind of certainty about what it was, but to go, man, that was interesting. Hmm. So angels, I don't know. I haven't had that experience with angels yet. Except for Ray. I think there's value in holding truth or ideas, but it's kind of more a matter of how tight or how willing you are to allow the grip that you have on that thing to loosen or, you know, it's, we won't learn maybe as much as we would if we didn't pick things up and examine, you know, as having experiences like Glenn's talking about, or, you know, even our experience in Mormonism or whatever it is that we're interested in, in the moment, pick those things up, hold on to it. You see it, you learn from it, but be willing to kind of let it go, you know, when the time's right. And, and that's kind of where for me, it parallels a lot with nature because nature is always evolving. You know, you look at a beautiful tree that's blossoming in spring and you love it and you see it and it's there and the blossoms fall and it goes through winter, you know, and, and that's okay because that's real. That's the way the world works. Um, and I think it's damaging when you're holding on to that idea of the blossoming tree saying it has to be this all the time because you'll be disappointed like everything else that changes and grows. So when, uh, when, what's his name? Sorry, who we were just talking to about certainty. Andrew Garfield. Andrew Garfield. When he was talking about certainty, the thing that was coming to my mind is like, okay, we talked about certainty a week ago and all the things that I'm certain of or not certain of. And mostly it's like, I'm not certain of anything in my life, right? And I think back to when I had a quote unquote testimony and the things that I was certain about um, and the experiences that I had and the feelings and reasons that I had to get me to that certainty. It's not like I'm necessarily discounting those experiences right now that, I, that I've had. I, see, I, see, I, I remember, like I went back and actually reread some of my mission journals not that long ago. And I remember those experiences very clearly, you know, and how I felt at the time and then rereading them. Um, but it's, it's a reinterpretation of what those experiences were and, and, how, and, 
the mental state that I was in, the emotional state, the spiritual state that I was in at the time, but being open to reinterpret like my understanding of the world on a regular basis, that's something that I, that I hope I'm certain of into the future, like that I will be open to learning new things about myself and learning new things about the world around me, um, wherever it feels most right and true going forward. And, And not that I, not that I have like landed on the one true truth I'm making some big air quotes for listeners. Love it. You guys are awesome. All right. We're going to move on to our next uh, clip. So I'm actually going to play the clip from the radio West interview. Um, And this is Dustin Lance Black's discussion about violence. And he's actually responding to um, a Deseret news article written uh, about uh, the show which I, I don't know if you've listened or read, but it, it's horrible. Anyway, let me play this clip. In the instances where it's been used as a justification, hmm. um, and that's certainly not exclusive to Mormonism. Take a look at the Crusades. Yeah. I don't think Christ uh, would have been like, hey, that's the right way to go about this. I also uh, would challenge the research in that article. How do you define violence? And in a culture where, and I know this firsthand, where women very often report violence in the home and they're told to turn to the church before the state, this happened in our home. This happened to me. When a Mormon stepfather's fist landed in my eight-year-old face and blood poured out of my nose, I was not allowed to go to the police. I had to go to the church. Before we accept The conclusions of that article in terms of violence in Utah, I think we need to uh, consider what goes unreported uh, in the state of Utah. And I think we need to consider what we define as violence. It's not just the shedding of blood. It's also the crushing of souls and self uh, that is pervasive uh, in this faith. Um, And that is particular to women and LGBTQ people uh, in Utah. Um, And in the Mormon faith, uh, you know, violence takes many forms. We should be paying attention to all those forms. And we should also understand in this culture, violence goes unreported because you are supposed to talk to your bishop before a police officer. All right. Um, So this is kind of where I really, um, my brain just kind of went nuts with with that discussion about violence. And I would say, I'll share just a little bit more from the book here um, that kind of coincides with this conversation about violence. And oddly enough, it's, it's love. And it's uh, I think I didn't speak to it earlier, but I think one of the main points of the book is this dogma that, that God speaks to man. Um, So to me, one of the most disturbing parts of the book was when Dan Lafferty is describing in very uh, detailed words what how he went about killing Brenda and um, her daughter. And Glenn, you might need to put like a some sort of warning before this episode because I am going to be talking about some of these things and that might be triggering for some people. Um, so just just some of the the things that I got out of the book and I kind of just summarized. But when 
when Ron knocked on Alan and Brenda's door, no one answered. And, and Dan thought it was, he thought it was a, an Abrahamic test initially. And Ron had just passed this Abrahamic test and he thought, oh, thank God. And so they started to drive away. So you can tell that Dan's feeling very inspired by the spirit, you know, he's trying to follow what God is telling him to do. And so they start driving away and Dan gets this strong feeling that he should turn the car around. So he did. And he goes back to the apartment, but he doesn't know why. And it, isn't it sounding just like any missionary story or any home teaching story you've ever heard when he's describing this? And I think that's why it was so disturbing. Um, and the whole time it says he's wondering why he's searching for answers with the prayer in his heart. He's, he wasn't sure what he was doing. Um, and then quote, he had, he says, just quote, just had a real comfortable th feeling about what I was doing at this point. It was like someone had taken me by the hand and was just leading me comfortably along. Um, and so then Brandon answers this door and uh, he says, I was kind of silently talking to God. And I asked, what do I, what do I know? And he felt guided to push past her in the house. Um, and he goes on and on with the story of how the whole time all these little signs were, you know, God showing him what to do. Um, and it was just, you know, honestly, preparing for this episode was was not enjoyable. It was not fun to read these disturbing thoughts from a very disturbed individual. And uh, to this day, apparently, he still believes that he did nothing wrong and that it was all what God told him to do. And, um, but this got me thinking one of, you know, this, this spectrum of violence that is, is out there. And I'll give you, um, an example of this. So you have on the one end of the spectrum, you have this Lafferty, uh, type violence of murder. And, but then there's this other really, subtle passive violence that I, I think is, a, is out there. And I'll give you an example of, if, because um, I've thought about it before. Um, sometimes I go biking on Sunday. And I, when I do that, I think if I get hit by a car, which I'm always thinking about when I'm biking uh, and I die, the first thing uh, that my parents will probably think is, why was he biking on Sunday? He shouldn't have been doing that. He was breaking the Sabbath. Um, and then they would kind of always have that in the back of their head. And I would have done the same thing as an active believing member of the church. If I had heard someone, if they were drinking and they were drunk driving, they, you know, they would, it would, it would be justified because they broke the, the word of wisdom or they broke the Sabbath. They shouldn't have been, you know, doing such and such on the Sabbath. And you start justifying in your head um, the violence, right? That it's okay because, you know, God, you know, would have protected him. And so what I guess what I'm saying is I'm seeing some similarities here. Um, I'm not saying that they're the same, one and the same, um, but I still see this kind of passive violence uh, going on where people, um, and there's a word for it. It's called, I had to look it up. It's called Schadenfreude. I don't know if you've ever heard of that word. Um, but it's the joy that you receive when other people are, are, are harmed because um, it, you know, it's proving you correct or something like that. I don't know if that's exactly what Schadenfreude means, but it's the, it's the joy you receive from, from others um, receiving pain. But I know I just kind of went on a long 
diatribe there, but I just wanted to get your, your thoughts on, on that. I love that diatribe read. I love it. Um, Go ahead, Jess, you take it. No, I was just going to share a similar experience that was actually kind of pivotal to Tanner and I, like my husband and I, our experience of stepping out because we were slowly starting to have a different lens looking at the actions of the members around us. And we were invited to a dinner with a big group um, of members and someone brought up this really tragic accident, like uh, this car accident, but two newlyweds that were in it and they both had just gotten married and they both passed away in this accident. And the immediate comment that followed was a friend of mine at the time saying, oh, that's too bad they weren't sealed in the temple. Uh, (laughs) And Tanner and I, we were just sitting there just kind of like, oh, like, how is this okay? Like, to me, that is speaking to the same specific violence of ripping apart these two human beings and this idea of them being together forever wrapped in this kind of performative niceness of, well, this is why we do what we do (laughs) because Mm -hmm. we want to be together forever. And that really stuck. And I see that now when I look at, oh, well, we love you. We just don't condone, you know, any of those kind of phrases that get tossed around where they're, how do you say that and think, I'm being kind, it's not, it's performative niceness over kindness. Um, And that kind of, that was really, has really been underlined to me when I hear people say the phrases that are supposed to be comforting, but then on the outside you're going, that hurts, you know, this is really rude. Well, so Reed, like as you were talking and Jess here, exact same thing. So the thing that kept running through my mind is like, those who had something who who had something bad happen to them like they had it coming to them because of their actions right and it it allows an individual like in this case like the lafferty's it allows them to offload the like the mental burden of performing that terrible act on someone else to like oh this is god's will like this is this is this is not me doing this i'm just like the vessel by which this action gets completed right and whether it's like the most awful case like in in under the banner of heaven or whether it's someone saying something terrible at a dinner party or like insensitive at a dinner party like there's that idea of this this is this was what god wanted to 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 occur and like it's not on me anymore it's you know it, it was god's will like it, it totally it totally deflects the personal ownership that you have for your actions and feelings and everything that, you know, that, that goes through you. Or even just acknowledging the complexity of it. Like that you don't, yeah. you can't sit with that like dissonance in your brain for very long in a structure like, like this that we're talking about, you know, it's too uncomfortable. And, and one of the biggest purposes and things I probably miss if I'm being honest is that feeling of, Oh, well, I know, you know, like there are these, things set in place to make me feel protected when something is uncomfortable. And, you know, there's all those cultural reminders all the time, you know, like we're saying um, that reinforce that, that you, and I get it. I I understand that. Hey Jess, can I pick on you for a little bit? Sure. So this example that you gave when you and Tanner heard this other couple say, Oh, it's a shame that they weren't sealed to the temple. the, The ones that had been in a car accident you interpreted that as a really violent 
expression from this other that they were committing violence. Um, that that that's what I thought you said, right? Mm-hmm. Could you explain to me where the violence is occurring? Like, what is well, the like the violence and how is it happening? Here's my perspective on this because I think one aspect when you're deconstructing is to start putting yourself in other people's shoes more often. And I find myself when I hear any kind of experience that anyone has that I might have a a judgment, I try to imagine reframing that from someone else's perspective. And so immediately hearing that, it sent that reflex of like, if this family heard (laughs) that, someone thought that they wouldn't, you know, whatever it is, just like how, you know, it's, it just bumps up against that. You have no idea. So, so the, so the violence, it, it would, it would hurt the family of the people that um, lost their, so that, that's where the violence is. So, so the, something is, is hurt or something's destroyed there it's the potential harm, you know, we were all Mormon there, but the potential harm that statements like that cause, I think you're just kind of cued into it a little bit more. And although I wasn't just like appalled and yell at her or anything like that, it just stuck in there. Like, oh, that's one of those things that can be a catalyst for hurt, hurting Mm. people. Um, So maybe it isn't necessarily a violent act, but it's an evidence of violent sparks (laughs) well i i love that you brought it up as an example because i i think it it provides a really good case study to ask like what what is violence and what what's violence when it comes to communicating with another person like this is what i think and this is what i feel um the are are any of you familiar with nonviolent communication nvc ever heard this before never heard of it no, no. We, we've, we've got something to talk about in our next group coaching then not nonviolent communication is really cool so i i would encourage you to to look up nonviolent communication um it's really helpful especially when when you're interacting with uh, spouse loved ones family members and it's all about taking ownership for here's here's what i'm thinking and feeling and i'm not going to tell you how you are because that would be violent. That, that, that would be me um, inserting my opinion of you and saying that you are somebody other than what you think that you are. I'm just going to stick to me. I'm going to stay in my lane. Um, like when you say something like this, it makes me feel this is a different way than saying like, you did this to me. And where the other person like, no, I didn't mean to do that to you. Like the, the person that's accusing them is actually committing an act of violence through their speech on the other person Mm. by um, not giving them the uh, respect of their own thoughts and opinions. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so I, I want to go back and and refresh myself on nonviolent communication, but it's, it's an interesting question. Like how, if, if you're a Mormon and you really believe that, um, Oh, it's too bad that they didn't, that they weren't sealed because they have their best interest in heart. They're like, we loved these people. We wanted them to be together forever. Now they're not going to be able to, you know, like they should be able to express that of themselves without that coming across as being a a violence to somebody else because they're wrong. Well, how do we know that they're wrong? Are we certain (laughs) that they're wrong? So this, this is what I wanted to make sure I didn't, I didn't really make clear the first time, but I think a lot of, 
so let me give a couple of examples here of, I remember when I was very active, very believing, there was a guy that left the church very publicly and very antagonistically and um, his business failed. And I, and I was, I was happy because I thought he was going to humble, be humbled to come back to the church. And I think this is what uh, parents do with, with their kids who leave the church. They hope that, you know, their kids are humbled uh, to the point that they think it's just a matter of humility. That's all they think it is. And they'll come back. And so, but there, it's a, it's motivated out of love. Like they want their kid to be saved in the celestial kingdom. And the only way is for them to become active again and, and take the, you know, the covenant path. Right. And so I think that's what I'm getting at is there, there's a similarity with the Lafferty's did. They were wanting, you know, Brenda to fall in line so they could all be the same and they could all, you know, they were all trying to, to enforce their certainty, I guess, but it was motivated and it's ugly out of love. Right. I, I don't know if it's love or if it's just some, some other tribal um, motivation or something, but I wouldn't say that the Lafferty's were motivated by love. You, you thought that they were well, when you, when you listen to those words that he was talking about, I mean, you don't get any feeling like there was any hatred for Brenda. I mean, the whole time he's guided and he's, he's, I don't know. I, I don't know. We don't know what was going on in his head, but I'm just saying that there's this element of being motivated to do violence out of love. Like a parent who's worried about their kid leaving the church, hoping that I they mean, lose their job and they, they, you know, fail miserably in life so that they will be humble to come back. I'm just saying that's, that's the point I guess I was trying to make. That that's the whole concept of blood atonement, right? Right. From Brigham Young, like yeah. that, that you, if you really love them, then love. you'll. If you really love them, yeah. you would do it. Right. Right. Really right. And and so when you're when you're calling something love that isn't actually love, there's a danger in that, right? And it, you you get that in the Mormon Church now, where like we love our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, we just deny them their <laughs> you know See, their is, happiness is... in every single area of life, but right. we love them. Okay, really, let's stop. Let's stop and talk about what love actually is and what love actually <laughs> really means. We're functioning on then. different definitions of love: yeah. conditional or you know unconditional love. It's we're talking same words, different meanings. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. This is like what we were getting back to, you know, a while ago, talking about love. Who controls the definition of love, right? Control. Like, Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because you are putting it out there, like, oh, that wasn't in love. Like Glenn's yeah. definition of love, it wasn't in his definition of love, and but like the Lafferty's definition of love, we don't really know what that is. But is there? Is love some kind of universal virtue that just exists objectively? Like, I don't think so. I mean, it's interesting. Lance Black talked about, you know, Jesus Christ in that like thing we heard from Radio West. He's like, oh, I don't think Jesus would feel too happy about the Crusades. But Jesus did violence, right? Like Jesus was violent towards the existing structure of like the, the Jewish like traditions that were happening at that time right sure um and and he wanted to tear it down and like there were times in the bible where he did do that right and like there's this uh uh this philosopher guy uh walter benjamin um who wrote an essay the a, a critique on violence or on the critique of violence and he talks about um these two types of violence, mythic violence and divine violence. And mythic violence is the violence that we perform 
in order to maintain the myth that we have in our society, right? Like the myth of, of power, like uh, whoever is in power, you know, they're, they are in power because of some myth. And then there is divine violence, which is the violence used to um, like free people from that system of violence. But you can never like, it's an unfortunate choice of word like divine violence because, you know, you might think like Ron and Dan Lafferty in their minds were using divine violence, but from Benjamin's perspective, their violence is, is mythic violence. They're, they're using the violence to maintain their myth. How, how do you define, define just violence in that? Like who's in control of that? Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. But how, how do you, like yeah. when you think about something that is violent or isn't violent, like how do you make that distinction? um webster's dictionaries webster's dictionary <laughs> there are three primary the you take the root vio from <laughs> um, no i don't i don't know it's hard because you know depending on your frame of reference that's a physics joke that's why all the physicists are just cracking up (laughs) any action may be perceived as violence right like depending on on uh that you're like how you perceive it and so i don't know like it's similar to love like is there there's no like such thing as like violence as an objective force in the universe can there be respectful violence yeah really I mean, we, if you live in the United States of America and consider yourself an upstanding, good citizen, then there are a, a lots of types of violence that you condone, right? Your life is maintained by a whole system of violence. Well, but, I, but what I'm saying is, can, can you respect someone and commit an act of violence against them simultaneously? Because I... I mean, I'm, I'm trying to figure out a definition myself, right? And, I, and I'm thinking that violence has something to do with changing or altering something about somebody really without their uh, permission, without showing respect to them, without their, you know, like I'm trying to figure out what that violence is. I'm still not quite there yet. But I, yeah, I think I that respect, like b- being able to respect somebody's, like where they are, what they want. And you're not going in and like, I'm going to change what you want because this is what I want and what I want is more important than what you want. And so it's going to be this way. That to me seems like it's an act of violence. I mean, again, like you, you, it's, it's a perspective thing, right? I mean, does a doctor commit violence on someone when they do surgery? No, but, but I I mean, what, what if, what if the person was unconscious and the doctor is like, I'm going to do the surgery. And then the person wakes up and is like, I didn't want you to remove that tumor. It was my friend. It spoke to me. Why did you take this from me? Like you've, you've robbed me. You've committed this act of violence. I, I didn't say this was okay. Yeah. 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 I think that, yeah. I think one thing that we're kind of overlooking or not overlooking, but jumping ahead of is the fact that we want to rationalize and figure it out with our brain and how we think about it. But a lot of this just boils down to we're human beings. We're feeling creatures that take in information, have experiences. So we're all just 
gathering feelings like bringing what, it back to the heart i love it what's violence is the way we feel and so mm-hmm. in respecting another person's definition of violence we just need to listen mm-hmm. and learn from them because they're going to take feeling you know their experiences or their feelings are going to be different than ours so very, you know as good. nice as as nice as it is to have definitions and and a concise way to wrap it all up we're all functioning in very different arenas in our life and experiencing things in very different ways. So remembering that, that kind of puts us in a, in a, a little bit forward position, I think, at least for me. Amen. Amen. Philip. All right. Well, great discussion. I think we can uh, wrap it up right now unless anyone has anything else, but yeah, I, I forgot to mention my two favorite parts. Oh, one at the beginning in the first episode um brenda saying some say love which i cannot oh. disassociate from napoleon dynamite anymore like <laughs> after listening to that it's like the only thing i could think of and then the second piece the opening credits did did anyone else notice that like the font they use was just like the old church logo from the 80s oh i didn't notice that i'm gonna look for that anyway yeah, there's some good little nuggets in there and some anachronisms. I know we, when we were watching, we were laughing through parts of it, but we would point out oh, hey, like that the painting. Yeah, the Greg Olson painting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, we did the same that thing. That did not come out then. Or little things like that were kind of fun, which I don't think anyone else would, you know, like we said, no one else would notice. But yeah. We're, we're so in tune with anachronisms now, aren't we? Um, <laughs> And I would just add, uh, Curtis, that in the third episode is the mo- the talked about, I don't know if it's one of many, but the temple scene um, oh. where they show the the penalty, which yeah. I've never I've never seen how the I mean, I, I imagined how it was, but the wording's a little different, but I thought they did a good job with it. It was uh, it wasn't okay. too bad. Can we also talk about how terrible of a trap that was that Taba fell in? Like the worst trap ever. He just got out right after that. <laughs> like, you can create such a better trap in the woods and they failed. <laughs> exactly. so. yeah. oh, Is that an episode three thing? A trap that's in the woods? two. That's two, two yeah. No, He's no. running, chasing, and he falls into a pit, but then he just gets out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Joseph's brothers were way better at trap building than. Yeah. Joseph Smith's brother? Anyone would be better. <laughs> no, sorry, be sorry. Better. Joseph from the Old Testament. Oh. Uh, the trap of many colors. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us. There we go. There's my. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I love it, Reed. All right. All right. Well, have a good night. Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. You don't need them anymore Lay down the weapons that you use against the world We don't need another war Put down the weapons that you use against yourself you Hi, this is Hillary Matthew Ryan Carol Dashley And I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones You can comment on this episode on the website InfantsOnThrones.com And if you really like what you hear Give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? My worst crime is an inside job. Dark thoughts taking over like an inside mob. I tune into the scene between the eyes and take a breath. Thank you for listening to... Infant
infants on throne. I sit still and watch the thoughts flow past me. Never mind the future, never mind what the past be. I like to jump and let the universe catch me. Three, four, watch the beauty blow past me. I keep my pockets like destination in sight. Keep my actions elevated to compassionate heights. I'm walking past the fight, laying down on such a night. Choosing love when I pick up this mic. So we 